1: everybody. I'm glad that you're here. How are you guys doing? We have an excellent show for you today. It's going to be a little different. We're going to be talking about sexual abuse, pedophiles in the church. It's a dark topic and very disturbing, but these things have to be said. Something has to be done about it. We have a fabulous guest for you today. Uh, I only bring on the best of the best on this show for you guys. We have Jimmy Hinton here today. He is the pastor at Somerset Church of Christ in Somerset, PA. He is a graduate of Harding School of Theology and Jack P. Lewis Ministry of Study Award recipient. He is a safeguarding specialist with GRACE, which stands for Godly Response, to abuse in the Christian environment. He specializes in training deception, techniques of skilled abusers who molest children in plain sight. There is a trigger warning for this episode. I mean, I'm a survivor and I've been an advocate for 11 years about. And the subject really, I mean, I've I've cried uh, many times listening to his podcast and Uh, We are going to be talking about his new book called The Devil Inside, How My Minister Father Molested Kids in Our Home, in Church for Decades, and How I Finally Stopped Him. I still want you to listen to the episode because the information that he's going to give us today is phenomenal. I think he is the best, the best podcast on sexual abuse of minors in the church. And you will find out why. I mean, he had to turn his own father in for um, abusing all these children. One of them was in his own family. So Jimmy and his mother, Clara, turned him into the police. So many other things have happened to Jimmy and his family. They've experienced not only the aftermath of the abuse, but um, they lost... Um, a close family member, Jimmy's brother died also. And so you're going to hear Jimmy's story today. And if it gets really dark and uncomfortable for you, come back to it later. Just take a break and come back later to it because the information that he's going to give is going to be extremely helpful in recognizing these pedophiles, what we can do about it. And he is probably the foremost researcher out there doing this. Just reading his his book, listening to his podcast, and the videos on on his website is mind-blowing. I learned so much. I think you will be really blessed. All right. Please welcome Pastor Jimmy Hitton to the show. Thanks so much for coming on and your busy schedule.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having me.
1: I am so stoked to have another abuse advocate on the show um, so we can support one another and help our listeners to um, to know about these topics. And I've been telling my Mending the Soul group all about your ministry because um, yeah, the ones great. in my group are, they all have like multiple generational, severe childhood and adult sexual uh, trauma. Hmm. One was sex trafficked by her own family, and so I told them that you were coming on the show to promote your book, and so they will be listening to this podcast. Very good. Excellent. (laughs) So we're here to talk about your new book, The Devil Inside. You know, I have to say that everyone's been telling me, you know, you have to write a book. You have to write a book, and you know, I didn't really think that my story would be a bestseller so I was just gonna write a book about helping churches identify and prevent abuse in their congregation. Yeah, and then I found your ministry, and I thought, well, Jimmy's already doing a better job than I could ever do on that subject. So I'd rather promote your book than write my own. <laughs> yeah,
2: I don't know about better. It's probably different. Every everybody's unique. Everybody has a unique um, angle, and the fact that we have other advocates out there who are who are doing their thing, I think is. Um, Super encouraging and, and it's tremendous. So, yeah, don't undersell yourself. Uh, we all are needed out there. We really are. It takes yeah. a mountain of people to keep our kids safe.
1: Well, I'm a musician and I'd rather write music and release an album instead of writing a book. So,
2: sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm in the process now of compiling a, a second album, which will be a concept album about healing. So, um, yeah, Fantastic. all my energy is going into that yeah Um, so i found out about your ministry through sandy kirkham she was Uh on my show and her books on the shelf behind me and yeah um, excellent book yeah so i was researching her and i saw her on your show and then and then you were on preacher boys show and Mm -hmm. so i i thought um well i need to um look into more on jimmy hinton's website Sure. So I started binging everything on your website. Those, those videos on the deception tactics taken from, uh, the magician's techniques Mm -hmm. just blew me away. Yeah. I've never seen anything like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, And I mean, you can ask me specific questions about that, but, um, you know, since you brought it up, the, um, my connection with doctors, Stephen Macknick and his (laughs) wife, Susanna Martinez-Conde, um, both neuroscientists, both incredibly intelligent, um, that came from doing my own research and just writing letters back and forth between uh, my dad and I from prison and asking them really specific questions. And, um, there were just so many gaps in, in research on child abuse that I saw that just didn't fit. Um, and you know, just missing information and some misinformation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, I started started thinking, you know, that the the techniques that my dad is describing really were methodical and 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 rehearsed. And it sounds like what magicians do, like that practice in front of the mirror and mm-hmm. just get their act so down pat that it becomes this monotonous, boring routine. Just the way he was describing it. Um, and so I, I started looking for books that had anything to do with abuse in plain sight and kind of sleight of hands things um, as it related to child sexual abuse. And there was absolutely nothing.
0: Mm-mm.
2: And researchers would, they would mention abuse in plain sight. And keep in mind, this is, I mean, years before uh, um, Larry Nasser, the U.S. Olympic right. doctor, before that all came out. Um, people, people weren't really talking about abuse in plain sight until Larry Nassar. Um, So I had been researching it for years. I couldn't find anything. And so um, quite accidentally, I found uh, Drs. Macnick and martinez Conde's book, uh, Sleights of Mind. And I, I read it, I gobbled it up, I read it in like two sittings. And I'm telling you, it was this light bulb moment where I mean, it made every hair on my body stand up. And I was like, this mm-hmm. is the key to unlocking so much understanding in how abusers work. And so a book from two neuroscientists that had nothing to do with abuse also had everything to do with it. And um, so when the Larry Nasser stuff came public in January of 2018, I wrote another blog post about abuse in plain sight and referenced um, their books, Lights of Mind. And then I just emailed them because I was like, I've been using their research for a couple years now and I never even contacted them. So mm-hmm. I sent them my blog post and immediately they responded and they were like, my goodness, when when are we gonna get together? Yes. Um, so we just struck up a conversation and ended up um, creating a friendship. And um, they came here to Somerset where I live and that's where those videos were shot that you watched that are on my website. And it was phenomenal to listen to oh, them. yes. Just so informational.
1: I mean that that was like a weekend seminar or something, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean that was a real education, and I would have expected you to charge for those videos or put them on Patreon or something, but they're free right on the on they their are free. website, yep. and so you know the listeners you need you need to go watch these these videos for sure, yeah. I already read your 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 bio for the listeners and and I already had to give a trigger warning because your family' story is 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 dark, and your family's yes. been through so much and so much heartbreak and but your story needs to be told. It is so powerful, and God has been using you guys to change people's lives. Now your book, um, there were definitely parts in the book where I cried. But I'm so glad that you told stories about growing up. I really enjoyed reading about your wonderful family. So, could we start there?
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, I really wanted to um, give people a a behind the veil look into what our childhood was like from a child's perspective um, growing up, because it's something that you don't often hear about um, in the families, within the family members of abusers. Um, so that was, of course, at a time where we had no idea that he was an abuser, and he was abusing siblings of mine in the same home. So their childhood was completely different than the childhood of mine, mine and my brothers. Um, so I wrote it really from from my perspective, but you know, our childhood, by all definitions of of a normal Christian childhood, I mean, it was it. We fit the bill for the normal christian family um if anything all these stories that you hear of these ultra right you know um you know people living in a bubble and and having these really ultra strict legalistic parents uh, that was not our childhood Mm -hmm. um it it was it was fun it was full of laughter we you know we all pranked each other all the time (laughs) we wrestled with each other um the oldest is a girl, and then there are five boys in a row, with me being the fifth in that strand, and then two girls, a boy, and two girls. So, with five boys in a row, you can imagine um, it was wild. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we we ripped and teared. We lived on 23 acres. We were very secluded. And um, our parents gave us free reign. And you know, both mom and dad were incredibly supportive. Um, they were very encouraging to us kids. Um, they they wanted us to to further our education. Um uh there was my third older brother, and then the next one of them, myself, all skipped our senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, our parents encouraged it. They uh they wanted us to go to college. I was just barely 17 years old when I started college. And I still remember the talk that my dad gave me before I left for college at the the fresh age of 17 Mm
1: -hmm. and
2: um, just told me how proud he was of me and that, um, you know, he was there to support me and he would always be by my side. And, you know, he was tearing up when he was giving me that speech. And I think it was sincere. So, you know, I wanted to give people that that peek into that childhood. Um, and, And I think I said something to the effect in the book of. You know, if you're looking at the children to try to figure out if somebody's an abuser, good luck. Hmm. You know, Uh, we had a very normal, very happy, very fun upbringing, and um, our parents were—they were rock solid
1: yeah it was the days before the internet <laughs> yeah right. so it's, it actually went out yeah. and played until it just got be dark. back by dinner
2: time i was <laughs> you know i was still in that that generation where yep. your parents said just make sure you're back by dinner yeah, by I think golly we'd we're... get up first thing in the morning and from the time we were little kids and we'd we'd go out we'd play anywhere and everywhere and then we we'd be home by dinner
1: yeah i think we're about the same age um Yeah. Those were good times. Yeah, for sure. And uh, it it sounded like you were a real pistol. (laughs) (laughs) I like
2: to drive. So I started driving. I think I was seven years old when I started with our, uh, we had an old three-speed Cub Cadet manual transmission. It was a three-speed lawn tractor. And I was seven years old when I started with that. And I was tiny. Um, And then it nine years old i started driving it was a four-speed manual um transmission pickup truck um an old beater ford pickup truck so i wrote about that getting pulled over by the police (laughs) because i took it on the road (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, stealing my sister's friend's station wagon he was up on the porch talking to my sister and i just anytime i saw a vehicle it was like keys were like candy to me and i was like I got to take it for a rip. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, those those were the good old days. Um, I know. I know generally where where you grew up, and you mentioned in the book that was where the um, plane went down on nine yeah. eleven.
2: Yep. United ninety three. Um, Shanksville.
1: Yeah. So your family. You have a great family, and you had no idea that he was a pedophile, living None. a double life. But there was there was some weird stuff that just kind of didn't feel right. But you couldn't really say what it was. Yeah. What, what kind of what kind of stuff did you remember?
2: Yeah. So I want to say um, I want to clarify that a little bit because you know, as a child, I I don't remember any of those things. Um, so this is all post college. Maybe from your mom, college, so. You know. Um, and I think just as a kid, you're not you're not looking for little subtle oddities, mm-hmm. um, for you know from as a from a child's perspective. We had a very normal upbringing with a very normal dad, uh, who he was the cool guy who we all wanted to hang out with, you know. Um, and then it was probably probably starting in college, or or maybe even right after I graduated from college, there were there were a couple little subtle things that weren't they weren't like groundbreaking but they were just odd. Um, Like pulling his camera out at the beach and just seemingly taking random pictures. Um, But then if you actually stopped and looked, you realized, you know, he's he's intentionally taking pictures of girls, little girls in their bikinis, you know, Mm -hmm. from teenage and even younger. Um, But it's not one of those things that, that you were certain that that's what he was doing. Cause he wouldn't, it's not like he would zoom in and, you know, get really focused and, you know, in this zone, it's just, he, he was always had his camera out and would take these pictures. So that was one thing. Um, just some of the conversations that he would have, um, about babysitting. He obsessed about babysitting other people's kids and, you know, just loved kids so much and loved spending time with kids. And, um, as I got a little bit older, I thought that was really strange because, you know, as somebody who now is a parent, I don't like hanging around other people's kids. I'm just going to be honest; it's not fun. It's not enjoyable. I don't want to do it. Uh, I love my kids and and I love spending time with them. Other people's kids, yeah, no thanks. You know, uh, I have no desire to babysit other people's kids or to hang out with them or to spend time with them. Just not an interest. So, you know, that was one thing that it, it never really seemed strange to me until a little bit older. Uh, when I became a parent, especially, I was like, this is really, that's really bizarre. And my daughter was only 15 months old. My oldest daughter was 15 months old um, whenever I reported my dad. Mm. So I was a brand new parent. And I think that was part of God's timing because when I had my daughter, that's when when my creep meter started going up. Oh, the creep like, meter. Yeah, and I was like, it's, you know, he kept asking my wife and I, um, like almost demanding if he could bathe our daughter, and we never let him. Um, but my wife and I talked about that, and and we're like, it just seems strange. That, that's a really bizarre request. It's one thing to want to babysit. It's another thing to be so adamant that you want to bathe somebody else's kid, your granddaughter. Um, so thank God we never let him do it. But it was things like that, you know. Those were the the they weren't like blatantly bizarre, but they were bizarre enough.
1: He said he in in your book he would take them take kids on camping trips and stuff and. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and that was something I didn't know until I mean, very shortly before my young sister came and and disc- disclosed the abuse to me because I didn't see you know growing up he didn't do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that I know of. Uh, he would camp out with us kids, his own kids, but um, I never saw that kind of behavior. If it was going on, I I didn't see it as a kid.
1: Wow. Tell us about the horrible day that would change all of your lives forever.
2: Yeah. Um, so I remember the date because it's just branded – on my mm-hmm. mind. It was July 29th, 2011. Um, I was two years into, uh, my job as a minister. Um, and I'm, pre- I'm preaching at the same church that my dad preached at. It's my home congregation that I grew up at. Um, so my dad preached where I'm at for 27 years. And you know, I never dreamed that I would be back at my home church. I never wanted to be back at my home church. Um, but the irony is my wife and I moved back to Somerset because, um, we felt bad for my dad. My mom and dad had just separated. Uh, so in January of 2007, we moved up here. Um, 2009, two years later, uh, two and a half years later, it was June of 09, I got hired full-time as the minister. Um, and then two years, two years after that, 2011, my youngest sister, um, she just contacted me. And mom had given me a heads up and said that, she, she would be contacting me, my sister, Alex. So she contacted me and she said, hey, can I, can I come meet with you? And um, I said, sure. Um, but I knew something was wrong. I could just tell by her tone, something was really wrong. So she came in that afternoon, that uh, Friday on July 29th and she, she just said, hi, that was the only word she said. Mm. And she handed me a piece of paper and it was an email correspondence between her and another victim um and she was asking this other this other female hey do you remember do you remember that night uh when ironically we had a camp out uh with our dad and she she was starting to remember what she thought was a sexual incident that night when she was a little girl and um so the response back was yes i remember and i thought i was the only one hmm. so um you know, I looked up at Alex and she's just sobbing. And, um, I said, Alex, I, I believe you. And I said, you need to know that I have no idea what's going to happen, uh, with, with us knowing this information now. Um, but I said, the, the one thing that I can promise you is that it stops now. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I was just trying to process what had been told to me and I knew you know, Mom and I—we talked about this on one of our podcast episodes.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We knew that we were going to report because I called Mom as soon as Alex left my office, and I said, "Mom, I assume you know what Alex was coming to tell me," and and she had seen the email too, so she knew. Um, and I said, "You know what we have to do, right?" And Mom said, "Absolutely." She said, um, "We have to report this." So, you know, we made it through the weekend because I had, it was like 30 minutes or an hour after Alex met with me, I had a wedding rehearsal for some of the, some of our church members. I was doing their wedding. Um, then Saturday I had the wedding, which my dad was at. Um, Sunday I preached. My dad's sitting right there, beaming with pride, you know, sitting two rows back, sitting right next to Alex and my wife. Um, and then the next morning, Monday morning, my mom and I were in the police station. And that that decision to report, we knew that that was going to change our family forever. Oh, yeah. And we had no idea what the outcome was going to be. We had no idea how many victims he potentially would have. Uh, we had no idea if he was going to be arrested or not. We had no idea if he would find out if we were the ones who reported or not. Um, there were just so many unknowns and and a crazy thing is the only thing that we knew for certainty was that our lives would forever be changed our family would forever be changed by us reporting that yeah. was the only the only thing that was concrete
1: yes i um when i read read that in your book it was i don't know how you got through that day got through that weekend Without vomiting or or somebody to physically hold you up, I don't think I could have done it. I would. It, it
2: was incredibly challenging because, uh, you know, it we had nothing, we had no reason ever to suspect him of abuse. So then this bombshell was dropped on us, and um.
1: And you have to pretend like nothing is wrong. Yeah. And not yeah. show that that this man that's sitting across from me is is a pedophile. Yeah. How did you and, do that?
2: And that's the common sense part, too, because, you know, this is kind of fascinating, too. I had no training whatsoever, and I talked about that in the book. I mean, there was zero training. Um, I went to nine years of undergraduate and seminary. You know, I have a master's degree in MDiv. Um, nine years of of college, undergraduate and graduate degrees. Nine years, not one lecture on sexual abuse, That's not pathetic.
1: One.
2: Yeah. So I had to. I had to really listen to common sense, and common sense told me that if he knew that we were onto him even a little bit, it would give him all the wiggle room in the world. It would give him time. It would give him um, time to formulate uh, alibis and uh, you know excuses, and mm-hmm. he would have known who who was the one reporting him. So he would have been playing us like a little fiddle. Um, So common sense told me, you don't even let on a little bit that you know anything.
1: Wow. Yeah, it must have been an Academy Award performance. Um, I I can relate a little bit to that. Because when I left my own abuser, uh, my first marriage, I decided to leave in January when he was out of town. And I left in April. And I had to do the same thing. I had to pretend Mm -hmm. that everything was okay. And yeah, um you know i had to put on a poker face and i didn't sleep for four months yeah because of of having to pretend i didn't want to like you say you do not want to want him to know that something is going on right i'll circle back to to alex real quick mm-hmm. and i listened to your podcast when she was finally on your show yeah um you know my my listeners know that i'm not only had my, my ex-husband as an abuser, I, I did go through my, my abuse with the guidance counselor in, in eighth grade in my school. Sure. And they, they all know that the reason why I healed from, from that was because my parents believed me yeah. and my, uh, my, um, my principal at the school believed me and yeah. the police believed me. And I was very fortunate, but yes. I know that that, that is not the norm and i'm so thankful that you believed alex and i'm sure she is grateful that she had you and your mom that believed her so well i think that's the other
2: thing her her life would have been forever changed for the worse had we not believed you Mm -hmm. know her her life changed along with all of ours that Mm -hmm. day too um that was a her decision to disclose that abuse to to mom and me uh was a life-changing event for all of us um and that would have played out very differently for alex had we not believed her and Mm -hmm. and you're right i mean unfortunately that's the norm for for victims of any kind of abuse who speak up about it um and that breaks my heart and it makes me it makes me infuriated Mm -hmm. because I have people come back to me, you know, I've consulted with churches before, and that's why I have that chapter on um, theology behind it. And um, starting with God's foundation of of righteousness and justice, you know, that word for righteousness means balanced scales. Uh, God's very foundation is, it's not love. You know, when I ask people what God's foundation is, that's almost always unanimously the answer that I get back. God's foundation is love. No, it's not. Toliness. Um, yeah, it's it's righteousness and justice. Psalm 89, 14, uh, righteousness and justice are your foundation. Steadfast love and faithfulness flow from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that foundation of righteousness, not tipping the scales is incredibly important because without realizing that people are doing it, they're tipping the scales for the abuser, they're placing their finger, literally, quite literally, they're placing their finger on the scale of justice in favor of the abuser by saying things like, "Well, it couldn't be him. I I've known him my whole life.
1: Or We're best friends. Up.
2: Yeah, uh, they're they're the pillar of the community. You know, you hear all these statements that tip the scale in favor of the abuser, and at the end of the day, um, again, I think. This was just common sense for me. Nothing about my relationship with my father mattered in that moment.
0: Mm
2: -mm. Uh, What mattered were the facts that were presented before me. That was it. Alex Mm -hmm. gave me very credible information. She gave me facts. And so in order to have a balanced scale where Alex is on one side, my dad is on the other, um, I had no right to tip that scale in either direction. And that's incredibly difficult to do so when i consult with churches i understand why people don't believe survivors but i'm also not tolerant towards it no so so i have people they'll try to bank on their relationships and they'll say things like well you know you're asking us to report this person and you know we run the risk of ruining a perfectly good person's reputation and i'm like no 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 let me stop you right there Mm -hmm. um this person ruined their own reputation when they did these horrific things, when they did these crimes. They enacted these crimes against very innocent people. If anybody's reputation is tarnished, um, it's theirs and it's their own fault. Um, if these allegations are, are credible and then they pan out, which you know over 97% of the time they do.
1: Yeah, or they do what they did to Sandy. They made her out to be some evil temptress. Sure. Yeah. She was, what, 14?
2: Right. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Like, really?
2: Yeah. Blame it on the girl? It's why I spend so much time talking about it and why I wrote about it. And, uh, you know, we've got to get people to to change that mentality. And I have zero sympathy for people who do it. You know, Mm -hmm. I had one guy, um, he was a church leader, and he said, uh, it was one of their elders who uh, had covered up horrific abuse um, within his own family and the pastor of that church said um you know i i played golf with this guy for 20 years and he's my mentor and you know my best friend and he said i run i run a very high risk of getting fired if if i follow through and do what you're telling me to do to report this and he and what translation he didn't want to report it because mm-hmm. he had such a good relationship with this man and he didn't want to break his you know, little precious family apart. And I said, I said, I'm not sure if you know my story, but I'm the wrong person to use the argument that I've known this person for 20 years of my life and we're best friends. I was like, I'm the wrong person to make that argument too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I said, you know, I said in that moment too, I was like, you know, Jesus asks us to lay our lives down for innocent people. You're not even willing to lay your job down. What <laughs> does that say about you? And he didn't. He didn't know what to say. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it was him, but somebody for, who was in that meeting with me reported. They reported the abuse, and that uncovered all kinds of issues in this church. There were all kinds of things that were hiding below the surface, and you know, among other leaders, they had other leaders that were abusing people in different ways. They had, you know, affairs going on and all kinds of bizarre stuff that they never know about until they reported this one elder.
1: <laughs> I think I tagged you in um, an article I read about that, that camp counselor. Oh, gee, I should have written the name down, but he was um, sexually abusing boys at the camp. I think the camp was in Pennsylvania. And, uh, and then the, the owners of the camp knew about it. And even the the parents complained, and still this guy was the, uh, you know, the camp counselor. Yeah. And um, they're they're finally, finally cracking down on this guy. But yeah, the, the stories behind him uh, abusing these boys and, like you say, in plain sight, mm-hmm. and nobody did anything about it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So you it's, it's too common. It's uh, way, way, way too common.
1: It's worse than people think it is yeah. now that I'm I'm in this industry. It's like, it's, it's worse than I ever thought. Yeah. Um, so your story just, just gets worse as you go down to the police station. Uh, so what happens when you go down to the police station? What happens after that?
2: Yeah. So at the police station, um, the, the detective um, I'm actually good friends with. Um, I did. Uh, I officiated the wedding for her two nephews. Um, you know, it's a small town, and um, turns out she's the sex crimes detective in our town, and she's really good at what she does. Um, and I remember she told she told my mom and I when we were in the police station. She said, "I'm just going to brace you now." Um, she said, "When I when I call your dad in, there are going to be a lot of victims." and that, that shocked me, you know, of course now it's, I, I expect it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but not knowing anything about abuse, I had no idea that pedophiles would have all these victims and that they could possibly cover it up for decades. Um, so I was in a little bit of denial with that, but I, but I trusted her enough um, to really believe that. And, um, you know, she was really blunt with us. And she said, you know, cause we kept trying to be a little bit sympathetic toward my my dad and you know kind of like hinting a little bit for her to take it easy on him. Um not coming right out and saying it, but you know, we were just implying that he was kind of fragile and, you know, he's a really nice guy. And she kept stopping us and she's like, you guys don't need to have any sympathy for him. She's like, he's a disgusting child rapist. Mm. And she's like, I'm telling you, there are gonna be a lot of victims. You guys really need to mentally brace yourself for what you're about to find out. Um, She was 100% right. She called him in for questioning, and she called me up um, as soon as he left the police station, and she was was audibly shaken up. And this is a woman who investigates sex crimes every single day, Mm -hmm. and um, she said, Jimmy, it's really bad, and she's like in – the 30 years or what, however long she's been doing this, um, she said, this is quite possibly gonna be the worst case that I've ever had. She's like, your dad is a very horrific abuser. Um, and she said, your dad's probably gonna call you as soon as he leaves the station here, because she said, of course, I didn't tell him that you were the one who reported. Um, and so no sooner I hung up with her, my phone rings and I look I look at the caller ID and it's my dad. i was like oh crap um and i mean that's when i felt like vomiting um and then he wanted me to come over to his apartment which i Mm -hmm. did and he wanted to he said get some things off his chest um so i went over there and and Mm -hmm. he just rambled and uh i describe it to people like it's like trying to listen to charlie sheen and make sense of a single sentence that he's making. Oh. That's what it sounded like. You know, Charlie Sheen, when he when he rambles and he just talks nonsense, you have no idea what he's talking about. That was my dad, and I had mm-hmm. never seen that side of him. He had always been really articulate and um, just always put together, always calm, always laid back. And uh, I could tell he was scared.
1: Yeah, he was in shock that he got yeah. caught.
2: Yeah, which – Quite honestly, gave me, it, it gave me a little bit of satisfaction to see him that way because when I hung up with uh, Detective Beckner um, and to hear her that shaken up over what my dad had just confessed, uh, I knew it was really bad. And so I knew every victim that he confessed to was suffering so much because of, because of my dad. So to see him panicked and to see him scared for the first time ever in his life brought some satisfaction to me.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And that's a form of justice because he knew. He knew he was going to jail. He didn't know when. He didn't know for how long, but he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt he was going to jail.
1: Right. And then you had to tell your family.
2: Hmm. Yeah, so we went away. Um, he wasn't called in right away. We reported on a Monday. And I think a few days went by before he was called in for questioning. So that first weekend after Alex disclosed to me, we had a trip down to one of our Christian universities um, that we had planned for a long time. Our church was taking a, we took a van down and it was a Sunday school teacher conference. And um, the president, the incoming president of the university happened to be um, best friends with my dad. They went to college together. Um, they both were from Pennsylvania. Um, they went to Israel together.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, they were, they were best friends. And so we, we landed uh, on the campus – Got out of the van on the campus of this university. First person I saw was, was my dad's friend, the president, Dr. Shank. And he came up to me, and the first thing he says, Hey, Jimmy, how's your dad doing? And I just, you know, I, I wrote the phrase in the book, I wanted to melt into the sidewalk. I never felt
1: mm-hmm.
2: so awful. Um, And I had to lie through my teeth Mm. because family members still didn't know. I had siblings who still didn't know yet that we had reported my dad. And, you know, we had this groundbreaking news that, you know, he now confessed to 23 victims. Um, I had family members who had no idea that we even reported him yet. So while I was on that college campus – and our church group is having the time of their lives, you know, it's like this really encouraging trip. I'm sneaking off and making phone calls to siblings of mine to tell them that, by the way, I reported dad for raping little kids, including oh. some of our sisters.
1: Hmm.
2: You know, how do you break that news to people over the phone?
1: Yeah, no choice.
2: Yeah. So... Yeah, it's it, it's those kinds of things, those ripple effects that people just don't think about, and there's so many different dynamics, and it's not just that you report, and that's that's part of my beef with mandated reporting training. I've been to so many trainings, and they're they're so dry, they're so boring, they're so full of misinformation,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and then they talk about mandated reporting, and it's they just talk about it like, yeah, you're a mandated reporter, so you know if you see something, say something. You know, that phrase, that mantra is repeated over and over. And and I'm like, shouldn't there be training on the psychological impact of mm-hmm. reporting? Because most people who report, they're either going to be reporting a family member or a coworker or a boss or somebody who they know really, really well. You know, eighty plus percent of the time they're gonna be reporting somebody who they they know well, who they're really close to. So there ought to be some more training that doesn't make it sound like you're reading off the menu at Starbucks because that's not what it's like when you're walking into that police station.
1: Yeah, you know, or Ben Stein voice. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so your your siblings, they were they just as shocked? Were they um They
2: weren't, and you know, the emotions were all over the place. I mean, we had everything from explosive anger to um some were angry with me. Um, because, um, you know, there's that initial shock and denial, um, that fortunately with my, some of my siblings only lasted for a total of maybe five minutes, literally. Uh, but there's that initial shock and disbelief and, uh, you know, trying to process all this information all at once. And, uh, so a couple of them were, were upset that I would go to the police station without ever talking to my dad and- you know and then when I explained things a little bit they were like oh like no we are fully supportive of what you did like you oh, had to that's do that's good yeah. That's
1: good and you wanted the church to know what was going on before it hit the papers or the news of course cuz you know yes. the churches are
2: <laughs> yeah so that was another interesting dynamic because my dad had been the preacher there for 27 years um most of the people there he baptized mhm You know, they sat at the feet of him preaching just like I had. Um, And so what I didn't want to ever happen was for me to give bits of information uh, that gave anybody any wiggle room whatsoever to defend my dad. Right. So the message had to be really clear, really precise, and very pointed and informational. Um, But at the same time, it was walking this balance because um, I didn't know – I didn't know who his victims were until right before he was arrested. I had no idea. Um, Besides for a a few family members, I had no idea.
1: Hmm.
2: And then um, just a couple days before he was arrested, we went out for coffee, and that's when he started naming names, and he rattled off. I mean, just very nonchalantly, he, he said, oh, by the way, just so that you know what you're dealing with when I get canned, here are the names of my victims. He said it just like that. Uh, just... And then he just starts rattling them off. And I sat there in utter shock.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And every name, every single name that he mentioned was, it? it I, I saw a face with it. Mm. You know, and it's these these little kids and, and then he started naming um little kids that were in my church that were still little kids he abused them up to the time of his arrest.
1: Mm. And you're and in a I diner, was... you know, and eating soup or something, right? Mm-hmm. I I don't know if I if I would have been able to control myself. Yeah. Put my arms around and put my hands around his throat or something. Oh, I
2: was tempted. <laughs> yeah, the thought crossed my mind.
1: I <laughs> don't I don't know how you didn't.
2: Yeah. But that was the part, you know, like that was my my next worst fear because it's like living in this constant nightmare that never ends and you're awake. Yeah. Um, and and I was like, how could this possibly get worse? Oh, I know if he has victims in my church too. And then he starts rattling names off, and sure enough. So then that brought up a whole nother a whole nother dilemma because we were so shocked and broken and just trying to process everything that was happening. I mean, this was all within three weeks from the time Mm -hmm. Alex came in my office till my dad was arrested was three weeks. That is a very short amount of time to get that kind of information, uh, to try to process, figure out how you're going to tell the church, when you're going to tell them, what you're going to tell them, Um, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and then to tell the parents because we had to tell the parents of those victims um, before we told the church. And then, of course, we couldn't tell the church that there were victims in the church, and the parents asked us not to tell them. So we had, it's just all these different angles that there was not one thing in graduate school, in college or graduate school that prepared me for it. And I thought, you know, looking back, I almost didn't write that in the book. But then I thought, you know, I know people from my college and, and seminary are going to read this, some of my professors are going to read it and they need to. They my need college to
1: didn't have any didn't have any yeah. training in that. We had new therapeutic counseling, but that was it.
2: Yeah. But I, I thought it's fair game, like they need to know. And I've been doing this for I've been doing this for 10 years and people at my college and seminary, they know who I am. They, they know my story they know what I do I've spoken at lectureships at at my alma maters and uh, I've never been contacted to teach a course or to have a discussion or uh, never.
1: So that's why I'm so passionate about mending the soul because the founder Stephen Tracy he's um, here from Phoenix He's the professor at um, he's a ethics and theology professor. At phoenix seminary and that's what he teaches he teaches he teaches abuse to the students there that are under his tutelage so somebody is finally doing it and he's he and his wife started mending the soul um as a response to some abuse that happened in their family
2: yeah
1: um and they they said there were no resources they had no training his wife was um, a trauma counselor but they, they were just blindsided by abuse just like you were and that's how they started their ministry so really uh, very passionate about what he does as well yeah um, it's just incredible to me yeah. I mean there's no
2: excuse for it and I and I I can't I can't ever I can't ever understand the blatant willingness to not talk about this and not teach this in college and seminary to bible students i can't i can't wrap my mind around it there's no mm-hmm. excuse for it mm-hmm. there's zero there's no excuse yeah. they know it's happening i know of instances that have happened at uh, both of my alma maters um both college and seminary i know yep. of plenty of instances It's on their radar. They know it's happening. They've had it happen with students of theirs. They've had it happen with professors of theirs. They know it's happening. Yep. There's just no excuse.
1: Okay, folks. We're going to have a part two of Jimmy's interview. As you can tell, he's a great speaker, great conversationalist, and an expert in his field. So I'd like you to tune in next week for part two of this interview where we find out what happens to Jimmy's father and the aftermath of the abuse. So until then, remember that you are no longer a victim. You are victorious. God bless you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.